Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Sure. Nancy Marshall. Now, you and I have known each other for about 20 years, and you, all, you with your partner, run a gallery called Walls Gallery that was at one point in Wilmington, North Carolina, but is now in Greenbrier, West Virginia, correct? It's White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Yep. Okay. My mistake. No problem. <laughs> so, of course, my thing, which like I, I've known you all, but I have never really heard sort of your backstory. So... I've watched, even watched a video about your, a little bit about your childhood and your youth and your training, but let's give it to everybody else. Okay. So were, were your parents creative? Like, how did you get into being creative? No, my parents really weren't. They, and we had a great uncle who was a painter in Iowa and, you know, he'd load up his, his panel truck on the weekends and take off and go painting, but I never knew him. Great uncle Bill. I have a couple of his watercolors, but, and they're very 30s, 40s, early 50s. You know, they just got this, this wonderful Iowa feeling from that period of time. No, but my oldest sister is an architect and she's a, she's got, she's a quilter. She has quilts in museum collections. And I was interested in art, but when I was in school, in high school, art was something that you had to be friends with the right people to be able to be invited into the art department. And I was never there. So I did a lot of drawing and stuff on my own. And then when I graduated, I went, oh, hey, I could go to art school. And I ended up at the Philadelphia College of Art for a year. And it was not my thing. It was very commercial. And my illustration teacher said, you know, Nance, I always wanted to be a painter, but I'm an illustrator. And you may want to be an illustrator, but you're a painter. And I had a friend of a friend who was in a school in Aix-en-Provence in France. And that just sounded like a a good thing to try. So I went there. It's a studio school, 25 students maximum, five professors, and we painted eight hours a day. And there was a lot of guidance and critiques and art history and, and training in judgment and what makes a good painting. So I was there for, I was with the school for probably about two and a half years. And I had, I had learned a lot, I think, at the, at PCA, at the Philadelphia College of Art, but it was the physical stuff, you know, about materials and a lot of how to's. And then I learned the art when I was at the Leo Marshwood School in Aix-en-Provence. And we traveled a lot and we got to see, you know, the museums and the churches in Italy. And we went to Paris every year. But the big deal was painting all the time because you don't get better without painting. And then I had kids and I had kids that I needed to support. So I got into painting portraits. And that was interesting and demanding. And I enjoy painting portraits. But when David and I got together, he was like, you're not doing this anymore. I mean, this is way too stressful. You're just not doing this anymore. And we met because he was a picture framer at the time. And he really didn't have much of a gallery because he couldn't do all of it. 
And when I came on board, then it was just go full on into the gallery aspect. And once as an artist, you are running a gallery, you're not an artist anymore. There, there just isn't time for it. Um, it's the, the, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could have a gallery and I can show my friend's work and my work and I'll paint in the back and oh, won't it be great? And it doesn't happen. So I was mostly the administrator for the gallery and that meant that was 1996. So everything started, that was the beginning of things going online. And so I was really occupied with all of that. David was able to paint and David really expanded what he did. And he painted in his time off when I was doing grocery shopping and hauling kids to soccer practice. Yeah, yeah. So does that cover it? That's very robust. Yes. I'm oh. most, the, the, no, no, this is far more than I knew about you. So this is marvelous. But the one thing that I picked up on that you mentioned was that in France that you were trained on what makes a good painting. Yeah. I would love to hear you expand a little bit on like, but like two sides of that, what they taught you then, and then what you know now. It's interesting because I really feel that I have expanded on what I was taught at that point. And David and I talk about taste and judgment. And hopefully we all are born with taste. Judgment is something we develop over years. I mean, a taste, whether it's good taste, bad taste, we're born with taste. So they were developing the judgment part. And so they had terminology that came from the painter Leo Marschutz. Leo was a German Jew who was enamored by Cezanne's paintings as a young man. And he was doing a lot of work while he was in Germany. And then things got bad. And the director, the owner of the gallery that he was seeing Cezanne's paintings at shipped Leo down to Aix-en-Provence so that Leo then lived the rest of his life in Aix-en-Provence and he was outside of the realm of everything that was happening. And I mean, not that he didn't, I'm sure, suffer from World War II, but so he's sort of the basis, obviously, of the Leo Marschut school. He died the year before I got there, but there was this concept of form form and form always stayed this pretty nebulous concept for me, kind of like composition is for me, this mysterious thing. There are people who just like get it. Charles Mavalli is an ace with composition. John Poon, ace with composition. For me, it's like struggle, struggle, struggle. Well, I would say that that concept of form was that the school had was what I would now refer to as composition. And my perception of artwork, abstract, realist, in between, collage, multimedia, whatever, 85% of the success of a painting is composition. And the composition, at least in terms of, of representational painting, I think your composition is decided in your first three minutes. As soon as you start laying out your lines within your, you know, just sort of your marks that are on the canvas for 
what you're going to proceed from. Your composition is there and it's either good or it's bad. And it doesn't matter how great you are with mixing color and how beautiful your brushstrokes are and how fabulous your materials are. If that initial structure is icky, it's, it just doesn't matter. And as a gallery person, we would, we have hung on several occasions, the same subject matter by two different painters. And they're right there. They're standing 10 feet apart when they paint. And this is the painting. And this, well, I know where it is, so it's nice. But it's not got that same thing that this does. And everybody who came in the gallery could see that. So I think that our human reaction to design is hardwired. We are hardwired to react positively to good design. We are not hardwired to make good design, but it's but a lot of it is learnable. So that I think was what that school talked about, but they talked about it in terms of unity of surface and and form and 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 I didn't look through the notes from all those years. I don't know if there's you know they're probably worm eaten by now but all those years ago to get all the terminology that they had, but there, but the, what I would say composition relationship, the variation, natural variation of shape, form, edge, all of those things were things that we talked about at school, but we didn't use those terms for it. I mean, to talk to any of my painters about unity of surface now, they'd be like, what, what do you mean? Unity of surface, what the hell is that? You know, whereas Charles Mavalli says, you know, you gotta have, you gotta have, well, said, you have to have a place to rest in a painting. That was never any of the terminology back in school. But I think that basic idea that we as human beings are hardwired to respond to good design was what the school was actually talking about just in different terms. Okay. But now after all your years of working on the sort of the commercial side of it, running a gallery and all this, do you still have that same, th that same knowledge or understanding or have you gained anything or lost anything? It's, it's really expanded and it's become less philosophical and more practical. And part of that is also, we were talking the other day about teaching. And so part of that movement from, from philosophical to practical is because I'm teaching. And I'm teaching because I really love art and I love any excuse to be able to look at paintings and to talk about why, you know, out of the five people who are here, you're all liking this painting better. What is it about that? What is it? You know, it's not the subject matter, it's not the color, it's not, you know, we go through all of these things to get down to what makes that a good painting. Okay, how can you put that in your work now? So there's the practical side of it. And two, I guess, a lot of what I do with clients is help them see paintings. That also is a way that makes it much more 
immediate. It's not this woo-woo philosophical thing about unity of surface. It's here, look at this and see how this works. I like the term unity of surface though. It's a beautiful term. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. 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 They had, they had fabulous stuff. They had their own art world. And what's interesting is looking at the paintings that they are producing now. And these are all people that I just adore and respect. And, you know, I'm so, so thankful to have had time with them, but the paintings that they're producing now, it's like, what where I, you know i'm i'm missing whatever this road was that you were here and suddenly you're over here how'd you get there and one of those painters is sam bjorkland and i don't know if sam is in the dominican republic now or whether he's in florida hard to tell but other teachers alan roberts and john gasparach they're still teaching they still have the school in aix-en-provence but it's a very different place. I mean, it just, just looking at the kind of paintings that are being produced. And one of the outside supporters of the school was Francois de Assy. And Francois painted the most beautiful, subtle, gorgeous, clean paintings. And now he's just this freaking crazy abstract guy. And it's just like, how, how did that happen? How did that happen? So I don't know. Maybe it was because he was selling helicopters on the side. Uh, you know, you got you to gotta pay your bills somehow. So if you can sell helicopters, go for it. But anyway, I, I don't know if I answered your question. You, you did. I'm just sort of interested in that tangent of the helicopter salesman but anyways uh <laughs> we're, we're he was to a really track. interesting guy yeah okay okay well the so what you're talking about the, the thing that i noticed about the gallery and you is, is that you will focus a lot of what with a very traditional and i apologize if that's a dirty word to you yeah. but like traditional sort of plein air painting, uh, oil painting, very iconic landscapes and this and so on. And, and also very traditional um, forms of sculpture. So a lot of like bronzes and things like this, mm-hmm. which in many ways is incredibly admirable that you are doing that. But do you ever find it a little difficult to sort of basically... It's kind of hard to like explain, but like, go ahead, go ahead, say it however it comes. Yeah, I mean, like you're not following the trends. You're not you're not chasing the trends. You're trying to set a standard, Mm -hmm. and and so like, have you had difficulty with that? Because like you know, of course, following trends is great, but it's also has its own difficulties. But in the same way, sort of having a strong position and keeping that strong position has its own difficulties as well. Sure, and I don't mean to sound arrogant. But I do think that if you believe that there are good paintings and there are bad paintings, then if you have integrity, you show good paintings. And I don't have any problem with abstract work, contemporary work. I don't have any, I mean, I don't, I don't, I I do have a problem with conceptual stuff. I, I do not see the value of a pile of extension cords on the floor. 
I don't see the value of a pile of fortune cookies in the corner of a room. I recently saw an exhibition where somebody brought a dumpster full of trash into the exhibition hall. I oh, yeah. that art. And I was oh, just yay. like, that's a bit much. Yeah, yeah. See, I don't get that. I don't get the woman who went into the Tate and sat on the floor with her underwear off and her legs apart. I don't see how that's art. But but Tolstoy said something about art that I think is is relevant here. And that was, and, and I'm paraphrasing, and I wish I didn't have to, but I don't speak Russian, that art represents the highest and best to which men strive. And a dump truck full of trash is not the highest and best to which men strive. You know, showing your, your lady parts is not the highest and best. Well, it, it, it may be to which men strive, but that's in a totally different vein. You know, it's so, so there are things that, it, it, there are places that I can't go with artwork, but right now we're working with a sculptor, Gennady Kirichansky, who is, is Russian. Well, he's American now. He lives on Staten Island. He's just a fabulous marble sculptor, fully full-on trained, awesome Russian. I mean, the Russians know how to train their artists because they wouldn't let me be one of their artists. You know what I mean? I mean, they're, they're very picky about who they let in as students. So they, the people who come out of that system are really top-notch. And you might want to take a look at his work because his work is very contemporary. And it's really just kind of these wonderful round women with enormous breasts that are just sort of unfolding and they've got birds sitting on them. And it's just this sort of, you know, springtime kind of here we are blossoming. And, and so, but they're beautifully done. They're beautifully done. They're beautiful to look at. And composition wise, you know, it's interesting that how does composition ap apply to something that's three dimensional? Well, these are things that it's not like there's a back and there's a front. There's just all, it's just no matter where you see it from, it's got this pleasing relationship of line and volume and light and dark. And so, so we have some things and, and it's interesting, our daughter Natalie has, has formally, formally joined us, not informally, but formally joined us. And I expect to be seeing more pieces that people would automatically say, oh, that's contemporary work. Whereas we have painters who have passed away and they didn't pass away as youngsters. And I would say that their work is quite contemporary. When I walked into your gallery, the thing, the, like the word that always popped in my mind was timeless. Like the mm. quality of the works that you had could be, could have been in a home a hundred or 200 years ago, and it could also fit in a home or a museum today. Like, oh, well, good. Yeah. I mean, I, I admire and respect the artists that you carry, though it may not have been my own personal taste of you know yeah. whatever. But yeah. but I they were always of of a certain caliber. 
you know, like I never went in and was disappointed in what I saw because there was always good craftsmanship. There was always a great skill level. So like there's a certain way that you seem to choose your artists that I find very interesting. So like when you're thinking about finding a new artist, what are some of the characteristics that you all look for? Well, we have artists and not so much while we're here in West Virginia, but in North Carolina, we used to have artists who would come to the gallery and say, I want to be in this gallery and I've got my art in my car. You know, can, can I show you my art? And, you know, and sometimes you just go, you know, this is really is not the way to do this, but in, in any case, and, and I think, and, and let me just stick in here after 2007 and the financial crisis of 2007, we went from getting five portfolios a month to 50 portfolios a month. And people, artists who, you know, it's just, it's a stressful time and galleries shut down and the margins in galleries is often a lot like margins in restaurants. We don't have the labor cost, but you know, it's just, there's, there's just the brick and mortar. Everything is, is expensive. And a lot of the galleries just couldn't make it through 2007, 2008, 2009. And one of the things when we talk to artists, they want to, you know, here, look at this painting. And this painting is really quite lovely. Well, I want to see nine more that are really quite lovely. I don't want to just see one. I want to know that you as an artist have a sense of excellence that you are going to require of yourself a relatively consistent level of quality. One of the things that we recommend to artists who are trying to enter into a professional realm is that they keep their high watermark. Your, the painting that you know, if you let this out, it's going to sell. But it's the best darn thing I've ever done. Keep that painting. And when you think you've got one, walk into the room, put it down with the one you know you nailed, and let that established high watermark talk to you about the painting that you just thought was great and finished and you know it's all wonderful and when you get to the point which hopefully you know if artists work every day you know this isn't something that you do once every six months you paint a painting and expect to get somewhere if painting is not riding a bike if you paint like I painted every day in France and then I had other stuff, I went into engineering for years. I had other stuff that I was doing. Well, it's not riding a bike. I lost all of that. There were still some, you know, some landmarks that I could hitch to, to work from that point, but it, it requires work. And if you do that work, you will surpass that high watermark painting. And you will bring in that painting and you kind of got this little grin in your face and you're kind of shaken about it because it's like, it's as good. And you put it next to that high watermark painting and the high watermark painting says, yeah, you're ready to sell me because that's your new high watermark. And 
so we look for consistent quality, but we also look for integrity in that painter. I listen a lot to a guy called Chris Martinson, and he said this whole right-left thing is just a lie. What we need to be looking for is the up-down. Is it integrity or is it corruption? Those are the those are the ends there, and you definitely want to be on the integrity end of that. And integrity in in art is, you know, are you trying to get a gallery to do your advertising for you so you can sell art out your back door at a lower price and undercut your gallery? And that's just unprofessional, you know, in in a, in a similar way to driving up to the front of the gallery and just going, hey, I got my stuff in my car. Can you take a look at it? But it's okay. I understand that there are people who just don't know how this works. And there are people who are struggling just to pay bills. And that, and it's why actors and artists wait tables. But one of the things that I always wonder about too is like I've seen it throughout my career that many times what I would define as like a very high quality artist who may not be either the best marketer or the most professional or maybe a drunk or whatever ends up getting great things because their work is really great. And I've also seen vice versa where a really great person who may not make the best work also then get some opportunities. Mm -hmm. So what's the balance for you on like the quality of the person and the quality of the artwork? It's really hard to work consistently for somebody you don't like and doesn't like you. It's very difficult to put in your all for something, somebody who does not respect what you do. So there are, well, there's one sculptor who comes to mind and he is brilliant, brilliant. He is so good at what he does and he's just an arrogant bastard. He asked us to represent him and we just couldn't. I mean, it's just, you know, we, we, we wouldn't do a good job for you. You know, and I mean, that's the way it's put. We just wouldn't do a good job for you because you don't respect us and we respect your work, but we don't respect you as a person. There's no reason to say that to somebody, but, but I can't work for somebody. Well, one of our painters asked, asked us recently, it's like, why are you still here after all the work that you've done and you guys are getting old? Why, why are you still fighting this and trying to learn all the new tricks for old dogs. And, and I just said, because we love you. And two, I think once you're in the art world and you find out that it, you, you internalize that highest and best to which men strive, being immersed in the effort to strive for the highest and best is just too wonderful to let go. But I think I kind of tangented off from what you were talking about there. It's okay. I love what you said. It's beautiful. <laughs> so the, the, something else I noticed about you all in particular is that you oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes will have a artist that you end up not only representing, but 
being their like strongest advocate and you know following them and building their career i mean I, i've had remember having long conversations with you and david about you know building the market building the interest building the collectors you know getting more institutional exhibitions etc cetera, etc cetera, to not only represent and sort of make money for the artist, but build the career over the longevity of not just like the gallery, but of their career as well. Mm -hmm. How important mm -hmm. is that? Because I feel like, you know, these days it's a lot faster. There's social medias and there's all these things that, that people believe it's a, a fast process. Whereas mm -hmm. I, I believe sure. that it's not, it, it takes yeah. decades to really build a successful, consistent career. Yeah, social media has provided that rocket to celebrity, and that is really misleading. But but people who we ask people, what's what's your goal in ten years? As far as your art is concerned, what's your goal in ten years? You know, and some people say, well, I want to give up my day job. I you know, I want to have my own studio. I want to be able to paint every day, or I want to be able to travel and do this. I want, you know, I mean, they, they have, they have their, their dreams. And then there are people who just say, well, you know, I just want to be able to um, get rich. And wait, which, which of those do you like better as? <laughs> well, we, we think that it is very possible to get rich in the art world. And I think Thomas Kincaid is an excellent example of somebody who got rich in the art world. So, so it's the abuse of art under those, under the Thomas Kincaid shadow that if, if your goal is to become wealthy and famous, then you can absolutely do that. But we're there more for the, you know, the kind of spiritual human side of things so that we're more interested in building for long term and and at this point and it's funny because at this point we have our painters what happens in galleries is gallery owners associate with painters who are their age so so we have painters who are getting old and people who are dying and and so when we talk about the longevity of their art and their production and their effect in the art world, some of them are right there and they understand we're talking legacy and we're talking after they're gone. And some of them are like, screw that, man. <laughs> screw that. I want to sell some paintings. And these are still people that we've worked with for 20, 30 years. You know, they're both there. It's just as they enter into different parts of their lives, they see things a little bit differently. And I'm sorry, you have to repeat your question because I think I got lost on that one. No, you actually answered it very well. It's, you're doing well. It's good. Oh, okay. Thank you, Matt. No problem. The, <laughs> um, okay, we'll skip to a different topic though. The um, What about, okay, you, you brought up the idea of quality of paintings and how like you should shoot for your high benchmark and all this kind of stuff. These days, I feel like there's this push to create larger quantity of work versus mm -hmm. quality of work. And so I'm wondering from your side as a gallerist, do are the buyers, the collectors, the institutions, are they more sort of seeking people who are making still sort of quality work or a quantity of work? 
Yeah, I think, and, and it's, it's a good question. I think that there are a lot of, there are institutions that are geared toward that kind of archetypal capital A art that, that this is timeless, no matter how it's produced, what its subject matter is, it's timeless. And then there are the institutions who are really interested in headlines. And how does this work? And, and, and the person who's producing a quantity of work is often producing things in a very reactionary kind of way so that they're more headline oriented, social statement oriented, whereas social statement becomes very passe and it is not timeless. So the, the, the garbage truck may be social statement, but it's not timeless. It's, it's not something that will speak to people over the centuries and touch something that is uniquely human, even though I feel that it is, well, may, maybe not uniquely human, but I think something that is consistent with humanity over time is that we, we know viscerally when we're not being treated fairly. We may not know who's being the unfair person in the process or the unfair entity in the process, but we know that. And, and I understand that now we have a lot of artwork that's being produced concerning itself with fairness. Goya's painting, The Fifth of May, where the guy in the yellow shirt is, is about to be shot by a firing squad. That has something that crosses centuries and speaks to us as human beings. A garbage truck, a dump truck full of trash may be intending to talk about the same thing, but it's, it's, it's not it's not hitting that eternal thing. And I would say that also comparing, and this may, may be me more than anything else, but you asked. So comparing Goya's 5th of May to Picasso's Guernica, I don't see that heart-wrenching agony of the 5th of May in Guernica even though they are basically talking about the uh, very similar things. And I think Guernica, just, it just misses it. It just misses it. Whereas Goya nails it. It is absolutely bullseye. Nails it. And, and, and actually, I would be interested to hear what you think about them. Oh, yeah, no, I would be on your side with it. I, I'm sitting here giggling in the background <laughs> while you're saying this. And like it's because... like. I personally probably engage more with your more traditional aesthetics. I mean, because what like the comparison you're making for me, what I'm hearing is sort of aesthetics because I have this longstanding position and I'm going to catch so much shit for this by saying this, but <laughs> that, that welcome to I, podcasting. Well, welcome to the art world also, but True. that I have this position that the, things that are beautiful 
will attract the viewer in a way and, and engage the viewer in a way that if it's not aesthetically compelling or in, in any way engaging, you lost a lot of people. So like there is a certain amount where like people say like decorative and aesthetics and all this stuff is pass is not a good idea. You know, this is contemporary thought, of course, you know, mm -hmm. that, that it's not important and all this kind of stuff. But I, my position is, is that I think that aesthetics and, and beauty, whatever you want to call the words for it is a, an important element in it because if people aren't attracted to it in some way, then they're not going to be willing or able to go any deeper into it. Mm -hmm. So like, so that, so for me, those traditional paintings of the, you know, the Goyas, the, the, the Renaissance, all these kinds of things, like I feel much more engaged and attached to those than I do necessarily of some of more abstracted, the Picassos, the Jasper Johns, all these kinds of things. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't, I love them. They're technically and 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 by a quality standard, they're well done, and I can respect them. But I do not have the emotional engagement and in them as I do uh, much more of the sort of the aesthetically pleasing and sort of human connections. Yeah. yeah, and and that's and that's a really interesting point because I think about the abstract pieces. Like I'm a big fan of Franz Klein. Mark Rothko. Love um, the, Rothko. The first show of Rothko's that I saw, I was a kid visiting a friend in New York City, and it was an empty building with brick walls. I don't think there were any lights except what came in through the storefront, and there were 11 Rothko's hanging on brick walls, and it was impressive it was take your breath away. And I feel like I haven't spent enough time with those paintings. And I, and I also firmly believe that I could happily live with a Rothko or a Franz Klein, unlikely to live with a Jackson Pollock. But I think there's more accident in the Pollock and more purposeful decision-making in the Klein and the Rothko's. And, you know, we listen to painters talk about how painting happens and that it's a series of decisions. You know, it's not, it's not, oh, I'm painting from a photograph. Therefore I know what I'm painting. I know what the end is going to look like. A lot of pain, it's, it's like, like writers say, you know, they, they can't wait to get back to writing because they don't know what their characters are going to do. In, in painting, it's, I find the paintings the most interesting when the painter is confronted by decision making all along the way, or, you know, decision making, adjusting, all of that. Whereas I just don't see that in, a Jackson Pollock. I don't see that in, oh, who is the guy who just did masking tape and then dripped paint down the, down, down the whole thing. No um, idea. Yeah. It's just all in that New York modern thing or Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol knew exactly what his stuff was going to be when, when he started. And he was, I mean, talk about turning art into money. 
the, you know, I mean, the guy was really gifted. And I guess, and if I were going to look at the people who were pursuing art from a perspective of, of that Warhol, you know, turn art into money, you got Picasso, you got Dolly, you got Thomas Kincaid, <laughs> you've got Andy Warhol. Jeff and, Koons. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, Damien Hurst. Damien Hurst. Yep. And, and there's very little part in that work. There's a lot of interesting surface, but there's not a whole lot of heart. There's a lot of, and, and I mean, Damien Hurst, I mean, shoot this, I mean, those butterfly wings, I don't know if he did that or whether he had his, his apprentices do that. I don't know. Or sticking the diamonds on the skull. I don't know whether he did that or whether he had his, his, but, but it's just, there's a lot of surface there and there's just not a lot of heart. And I think that's what I'm talking about in terms of comparing the 5th of May to Guernica is here you have heart wrenching, real historic and, and what those artists actually live through murderous times. And you have one that is just full of heart and one that's full of a surface design. Yes. Uh, generally agreed. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you and, you and I have, have had many discussions and generally we agree on most things though. Of course we look at it from slightly different perspectives, but thank goodness. Yeah. 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 So the, I mean, okay. So what I'm thinking about is like your, the, the people that you all represent, Again, still going back to your gallery, because I mean, part of this podcast is really about like the business of the arts, you know, mm -hmm. like how does the business work? And, and like one of the things I always wonder about your artists is their, their styles are very consistent. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had the issue where they, the, any of your artists have said, you know, I kind of want to go more abstract, <laughs> like, or, yeah. you know, like, I kind of want to be a sculptor now or like they they complete and and completely change their style and and the, but then the question is like have you uh, helped with that assisted with that or have you just said that's nice we're not going to represent you anymore <laughs> yeah we have had painters do that and right now larry moore is in that category and it's interesting because larry started out as an illustrator and going from illustration to fine art is not an easy path. And like I was told when I was in art school, Nancy, you're a painter, you're not an illustrator. And I wish I were a painter, but I'm an illustrator. I don't know what the genetics is that's involved there. I don't know why it is the way it is, but almost always when someone has been an illustrator, it stays with them in their work. So Larry went from illustration to fine art. And now he's taking his representational things. What he's been doing since COVID hit is he's been doing a lot of abstract work. His abstract work is not as good as, as his other work. He's new to it. He might just need time to sort of fi figure that out and get to the high quality that he's gotten from his you know, traditional representational work. Right. To me, though, it doesn't matter what style the work is. Composition is still 
your key. And so those, we, Charles Mavalli spoke for us on several occasions, but at one point he was talking about Carl Peters, who was a Cape Ann painter from the early 1900s. He's talking about Carl Peters and, and talking about composition. And he said, you know, here's your square and you divide it equally, horizontally and vert vertically. That is not composition. Okay, you slide that center point off to one corner. Okay, well, you know, you're kind of getting closer because at least you have four different shapes now. It's still vertical, horizontal, but at least you have four different shapes. But then you have, and he's got the square in front of him and he just puts in four lines that are, you know, angled and every which way. And he goes, now oh, that's composition. And so that was his story from Carl Peters. And composition is, a consistent issue, no matter whether you're a tight realist, like a like an atelier figure painter, or you're a plein air landscape person, or you're a whatever, or you're totally abstract, it never goes away. The impact of that, and that's what I like about Rothko and Klein, and Klein in particular, Klein's work is super dynamic and it has that same kind of pleasing things that the Asian calligraphy, the Asian alphabets and things do. If they're interested in hearing what we think, we tell them. Not everybody is interested in hearing what we think because we will tell you and therefore it might be painful. But if it's good, it's good. If it's not, it's not. So we don't have any of Larry's abstract work, but I would love to have some of the stuff that he's doing where animals are walking through construction sites or, or they're, they're, you know, they're, you know, you got animals walking through crowded department stores, you know, I mean, these things are just really, they're very cool. They're very cool but they're also really well constructed. There's just a great compositional aspect to it. I think that when your artist says, I need to do something else, he needs to do something else. You cannot lock an artist into, oh, but I can sell barns all day. You gotta paint barns. I mean, way to kill the impact of the art, way to kill whatever is good in those paintings is to limit somebody you know, we might not be able to work with that stuff that you're now producing, but you got to go where you got to go. And we are not going to try to, to, to stop you because whatever your direction, your development is taking you, you gotta, you gotta grow. Yeah. No judgment, just a question. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> something you, you were talking about like like the difference of like what the gallery does and what you like and this kind of stuff and so it, I suddenly I was thinking do you all have a your own personal collection yeah yeah I was going to ask you if you wanted me after this I'll just walk you around our house because where we are now and I think this is something that you want to get into we have reduced the square footage of the gallery dramatically. I would assume as much, yes. So we have reduced the, the square footage of the gallery while dramatically increasing our storage space for art because most of what we are doing is taking art to people's homes. They are not coming to us 
we go to people's homes. And this has been the case for years. So if somebody's five hours away and they've seen this thing on the, on the web and they'd like to, but they don't know how big is it, you know, all that stuff. And they're within five hours of here, then we load up and we take 20 paintings to them so they can see it. And, and usually what we, what we do in those circumstances is we end up rearranging the paintings that they already own you know, and just saying, you're not looking for the painting for this space because you've already got it. It's just in the back hall. Is it in the back hall because you hate it? Or, you know, and if that's the point, then then we won't put it over your fireplace. But that would be great for here and just rearranging things. That's a great thing. Like, so, so you all have taken on this more sort of hands-on, personal attention kind of a mm-hmm. business model where basically you've realized that a lot of people either don't have the time or the wherewithal to physically go to a brick and mortar place. So you have created more personal interactions and personal engagements by choosing to take the time and the effort to select some works and then go to them and, and basically try to sell them something, um, which is a very interesting business model in and of itself. So is that working well? Yeah. Yeah. It works well because, because you don't have any questions. You know, if if I'm and and looking at where you are, your your manner of acquiring art is so different than that of most homeowners. Most homeowners are so uncomfortable about art. They don't know it. It's a lot of money. I mean, it's it's like asking me to buy a a sports car. You know, I, I don't know anything about it and it's a lot of money. Yeah. Just, but just to be clear for the listeners, because they may not already have done research on you or anything, but like your gallery is not the cheapest by any stretch of the imagination. Like your Mm -mm. average price point is, I would Mm. say five to 10,000. Our, our average is probably actually more about five, really five. So we're not, we're not a $300 painting store but we're also not the 50 million, you know, we're, oh, no, we're no. not New York city, Washington, DC, LA. That's the, so we, I think that we are the kind of place and we have been the kind of place that provides the selection and service for people who are school teachers, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but, but taking paintings to people's homes, they don't have any question anymore. Oh my gosh, it looks awesome. Yeah, we used to do this. When I worked in a gallery in San Francisco, we used to actually load up a bunch of stuff and physically yeah. go to people's houses. This is back in 2000, 1999 kind of era. And mm-hmm. it, back then that was like, you're doing what? Like yeah. it, it seemed like all this work and all this effort for, for you know potentially such a little sale. But, but it actually was very effective because once people see, physically see it in their home, they fall in love with it. They, yeah. they feel attached to it. They feel that it, it, it completes the room in a yeah. way that they don't when they see it on a white wall in a, in a gallery location. Yeah, they, they have so many questions with the white wall gallery location. And, and they just don't know how is this going to function for me in my life. And, and if the place is close enough, or if we're going to stay there overnight, it's just, okay, you want to see these three paintings and you want to know what's going to work for you. 
okay, well, we'll, we'll bring them to you this morning and we'll pick them up tomorrow evening. Well, yeah. I mean, part of it also is seeing a piece of art in a space in your home with different light over the course of the day, because yeah. it, it can also look very different in the early yeah. morning than it would in the late evening. Or on a rainy day versus a sunny day. And yeah, and, and people are blown away by how much a painting changes when, oh my gosh, I turned the, you know, the sun set, it got dark. I turned on this little light over here and I looked over at the painting and oh my gosh, it was even better then than it was. Yeah, yeah, and they don't know that. So helping people helping people get to that point of being able to experience a painting is, is what we do. And, and, and I think, and that is selling paintings. We could sell a lot more paintings than we sell, but we want this to be just, it's a, it's a permanent, it's permanent. I mean, you're going to love this and your kids are going to want it and their kids are going to want it. And, and because there's something real there, there's, there's just, it's not just, this takes up the space on the wall. Well, okay. Within that, one thing I've always wondered about too, is like when it comes to an artist, the old tradition was the idea of having a patron. So like there would be a collector that would buy the same artist over and yeah. over. They love that artist. They want lots of it. Yeah. I feel like these days, now I don't know if it's because of budgets or because of space or lack of space, I don't feel like buyers buy multiples over the course of a lifetime of an artist as much as they used to mm -hmm. you know, buy like the one piece that like really impacted them. And that's it. Like, so like there's not that ability for artists to have consistent collectors. Yeah. Yeah. I think things have really changed just that we, we probably have more producing artists today, producing and selling artists today, than put all the rest of art history together, and we got more of them now. Well, I, I heard I heard a, a quote that said that there are more practicing artists in New York City now, just New York City, than there was in the entire Renaissance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, art is available for lots of people to do. And part of that is that we've been a very, we have lived as a very wealthy country. So that, so that there were a lot of people who felt that they could spend money on art. They could, well, they could put money on their credit card. I mean, put the painting on their credit card and that, I can, th that it's okay that I am an artist in New York City and my parents pay my rent and I'm 45. That, that's, that seems to be an okay thing. And, and it's very, it's just very available. It's kind of, I, I don't know if we touch on this or not, but in Russia, you're invited to art school. You don't apply. You don't decide, oh, I'd like to go into art like I did. You have to, you know, they, they see what you do and talk to you and go, no, mm -mm, no, she's no good. She's no good. We're not inviting her. And, and I think that's been something that's been typical throughout cultural history, that that was the way things worked. 
And so there were just a lot fewer artists and you only knew Michelangelo, you lucky devil, you, or you only knew Caravaggio. This is the only guy you knew who painted. And so if you had, you know, you didn't have a Clyde Aspavig and a Malcolm Lipke and, you know, you just didn't have all of these people at the same time producing some really great work. So I think we just have a way broader selection of, of stuff out there now. I mean, the candy counter is miles long. Well, that's the thing is like, I, yeah, I mean, like in the old days there were, uh, yeah, probably less artists and, and let's say even like the same amount of patrons. So like less artists, same patrons. So now there's the same amount of patrons today, but there's exponentially more artists. And so therefore the buyers, they can, they can just choose like one or two pieces. And that's the only thing they'll buy from an artist for their entire career because, well, right. they can just go to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So that, that traditional sense of like, getting good collectors or people that buy your work on a consistent basis, it's not as true these days as it once was. Yeah, it's not as prevalent. It's still there. It's still there. And the the other thing is, fortunately, we do have more collectors than we had in the past. So we don't just have royalty in the church. We have, you know, me, gallery owner. We have, we have you, university professor. We have, you know, we, we have... A, a much broader base of buyer, but yeah, they, I mean, the candy counter is just really big. So why only have jujubes, you know? I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, and it's good stuff, you know, and if you don't like licorice, you don't buy the licorice, but, but it's good quality licorice. Indeed. So, but it's not your, you know, not your taste. But. All right. Last little topic I want to get on with you because I know you all, you and David are very good with this presentation. Uh, yeah. we, we've had, you and I have had many conversations about this in the past and I, and, and I highly respect and admire all of the, the choices that you all make because you have chosen to always frame everything that you put in your gallery ready to be sold basically at any time. And you, of course, David has his background in framing so that mm-hmm. I, it, it makes sense that you all care about this and all this. Yeah. But the, I mean, the point being, the question I'm getting to is sort of like, do you notice a difference? Like, so if a, a potential buyer or collector were to walk in and see a piece that's framed ready to sort of hang so they can get the sense of how it'll be completed and looked in their home versus seeing a piece that's not framed and presented eloquently that mm-hmm. do you see a difference in their reaction is I mean, yeah. how important have you yeah. found that finishing that final framing to be in the whole transactional process yeah the presentation is is huge and and that's been a very interesting alteration in how we do business now because we don't have a gallery space where we can have 400 people come in and we don't have a gallery space where, well, I mean, we're on main street in white sulfur Springs, West Virginia, the door's locked there. My phone number's on the door. People call. I'm, and this was something that I meant to say, we live in the back. So, people call and they're standing out on the sidewalk. I come up here and I let them in. And then, you know, we just get to 
you know, chat, con- converse and commune for as long as they want to. So because a lot of what we're doing now is in people's homes as compared to somebody walking in the gallery and saying, I want that. Now we take the paintings to somebody's house and we also take along frame samples because one of the things that you, a term that you use to describe the artwork that we have is timeless. The frame is something that is the link between the painting and the environment it lives in. So I can take something that is very contemporary and put a traditional frame on it. And then it's happy living in a traditional environment. Or I can take that same painting and put a very contemporary clean white gold frame on it. And now it is just screaming contemporary. So, so the better the painting, the more you can bend it's, it's the time of decor that it's happy in. And because so many people are using decorators, whether their decorator is, you know, somebody fancy from Architectural Digest or whether their decorator is Wayfair, or Pottery Barn, you know what I mean? I mean, it's it's this idea that you here's your setup of your room. This is the way your room, if you buy this rug, this is the couch that you have to have. So that there are these rules of decorating that people believe exist. There, there aren't any decorator police who are gonna come to your house and say, oh gosh, that's the wrong painting over your fireplace. They're not, they're not gonna say that. Oh, are you that you're that police? Yeah, I, I okay. am that police. I will tell somebody if it's something looks horrible in their home. <laughs> so it's there are people who are concerned. Well, all my frames are gold. I can't put a white gold frame in here. I can't put a wooden frame in here. I can't I can't do that. And it's just, um, well, take a look at it. Take a look at it and see what you think. And and so presentation is is just presentation's a lot of fun because, oh, I guess it was Degas who said that the frame is the reward of the artist. When you see your painting finished in the right frame and the artists do not put the right frame on them. I mean, the artists just don't do that. Even the artists who spend a lot of money on their frames, their frames are like, woo, when the painting is, you know, and so all you see is the woo frame and you don't see the quiet painting. So from our perspective, if we can help the collector with this bare canvas painting, right? No frame and help them see it in the way that it's just absolutely going to sing. Then the artist is better off. The collector is better off. And, and so we try to guide people in that, but you know, we understand. I mean, we are in the position too. the cobbler's children have no shoes. We have a lot of things that are unframed because we can't afford to do it. And we're looking at a time now, really quality frames, handmade frames, hand carved frames, leafed frames, hand finished frames. They're really expensive. Indeed. I, I just got a eight by 10 thing framed the other day. It was like $200. I'm like, oh yeah. It's yeah. eight by 10. 
Oh, I know. And it's crazy. And it's crazy. And to me, and and I'm old enough too that $200 is like, oh, $200. Oh my gosh. You know, give well, me I mean, the, a, th- a, the th- thing in the $200 frame didn't cost me $200. Right. <laughs> so, like, right. the frame right. has now cost me more than the image that's in the frame. And the question there is are you going to now enjoy that? to you know a thousand dollar level yes. you know and, and that's that's the point because there are times when we take something and the presentation is is way more than the cost of the often the piece of paper that's in it less so with the, well with a small painting it's anyway anyway i mean there's just more considerations when it's a piece of paper it's the glass it's the mats it's all that garbage but and and the piece of paper was this wonderful antique print that cost you 45 bucks and now you just spent 420 dollars to frame it but it's it it becomes its whole thing it's 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 a new thing now it's not just the piece of paper it is a new thing so is this now worth 465 bucks to me yeah yeah. Yeah, actually, yeah. And and I and I think about this sometimes. You know, if I'm going to spend $1800 to present this thing that cost me, I don't know, $2000. So, would I be willing to have bought the package for $3800? And then, you know, and I sit back and I go, I'd have been willing to pay probably, you know, $5,400 for this. Yeah. Okay. It was a good deal. Um, but, but it's stressful though. It's money. It's really difficult because like I find that, keep in mind, I've been in the Middle East and I'm in Europe for a while now kind of things. A lot of artists do not, when they present their work for the public, do not put frames on because they assume that whoever buys it is going to frame it. And so they don't want to spend the money for frames that are basically going to be thrown away or discarded. And of course, like you said before, oftentimes choosing the wrong frames to put them on them. So they end up not actually helping the work. They actually sort of hurt the work in, in these poorly chosen inexpensive frames just to make it look like it's framed. So like it's that balance because like, again, I come from photography and in photography, a a photographic print is not done until it's been put in a frame. Otherwise Mm -hmm. it's just literally a piece of paper. So you sort of have to finish the work off by putting it in some form of presentation. Yeah. And it's that difficult balance of like price, cost, appropriateness, all this kind of stuff. But like my thing that I, I'm seeing more and more at the younger generations is they're not understanding the benefit of sort of that final completed presentation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as much as older generations do. Right. Well, one thing that we have recommended also, and this was more pre COVID when people would, when the art fairs were, were prevalent and, and, you know, street art and, and all of this stuff and the whole place gets in all these little tents come up down the street and everybody's got their work out there is don't, frame the 20 paintings frame two the way they should be and then when you're talking about photography the frame isn't just presentation the frame is protection 
So, you know, how, how do you do that? It would be harder. Um, maybe it's that, that shrink wrapped thing that you do that protects that and you frame a couple of them the way they should be done. Watercolors, the same thing. You frame a couple of them. Don't frame all of it because it's just too, too expensive. And if you do it cheap, they look cheap. There, it's, it's, it's rare that the right frame goes on the right work and it doesn't scream at least that much more valuable. And it helps people see it in their homes. At one point, we took artists to the homes of the people who had bought their paintings because the artists didn't understand why this cheapo, cheapo frame you know, why we kept giving them back their frames and tell them we don't want these. We don't want these. And then he saw those paintings in people's homes and he just went, oh, I get it. I get it. It's not my house. It's not going in my house. It's going in that house. Well, not yeah. only is it not going in my house, it's also not going in a white walled gallery space. Yeah. It's going in the place where people have other colors, other textures, other artworks that yeah. they that this work needs to interact with. Yeah. Where where they live and breathe and entertain and have families and and it all has to work there. Framing framing is really expensive. But it's even more expensive if you do it wrong because you have to redo it. So, you know, as, as far as works on paper, putting a good mat behind it and a good mat in front of it and shrink wrapping that puppy, at least it's protected, you know, relatively protected don't frame everything, but don't, don't be cheap about what you're doing there either. I mean, having rag mats is really important. You got to protect your work. And the assumption that a lot of artists have is, oh, I just put a cheap frame on it because they're going to reframe it anyway. No, because if you put the, you're the artist, Matt, and you put this on your photograph, Oh my gosh, I can't take that apart. That's the original frame. And I've learned from Antiques Roadshow that I got to have the original frame. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, you gotta, yeah, just do a few of them, do them right. And I think you can actually do that in a gallery setting as well. Last little question, because you sort of touched on it here and I suddenly want to ask you about it. Archival quality materials. You talked about like rag mats, this kind of gotta stuff. Do it. Well, that's the question is like, how important is that to the general collectors and things like that? Do they care? Do they even ask? If, if they know, if they know, yeah. Uh, well, it, for example, when this will be released, we will have a, an online show of Charles Mavalli still going on. Charles Mavalli used acrylic paint and people say, hmm, huh acrylic i mean oils the thing what is this about acrylic and i said pigment is pigment right you can bind pigment with water right quality pigment you can bind quality pigment with water you can bind quality pigment with oil you can bind quality pigment with egg you can bind quality pigment with acrylic and it's about the pigment 
less than it's about the binder. And that from what I understand from the restoration end of things. Which your daughter does. Right, right. Professionally. Yeah, yeah. Professionally, yeah. And hopefully you'll get a chance to talk to her. Natalie's a lot of fun. Hope so. A lot of the institutions would prefer to have acrylic. I mean, if you have to, if you have to clean it, if you have to restore it, if you have to do any of that, it's easier to do with acrylic than it is to do with oil. And that it and that acrylic has provided more stability. And I think there were there are so many screwy ways to use oil paint. You know, like we went through this time in the 20s and 30s where nobody wanted to varnish their work. I was about to say varnish. Yeah. yeah. You know, because because when they weren't varnishing their work, 20s and 30s, I mean, everybody was smoking like, you know, smokestacks. It was cigars. It was pipes. It was cigarettes. They were good for you. You needed to smoke when you got home from work and all of the and and those paintings have really suffered without having that that varnish over it. Well, with, with acrylic painting, I don't need a varnish. That acrylic paint is, is so stable and so sturdy that even if, you know, the, I've got a painting behind me that's, that's acrylic. Well, actually, this one's acrylic too. So, um, but a lot of the artists are moving to acrylic from oils for health reasons. But that has to do not necessarily with the, it's not the paint, but it's the stuff that people use with the paint, things, mediums, media that that are not conducive to good health, petroleum-based mm -hmm. things that are not good. But yeah, if if I mean, I like bringing paper out, like bringing old a map from the 1500s out, and I'm wearing white gloves, and I'm holding this, and I say, okay but I want you to touch the corner of this and feel the paper. Okay, feel that? Okay, and then I bring a piece of paper out of the printer and I go, now feel that. You feel how that's different? Yeah, yeah, that paper from the 1500s, this is how that was made. And it's all cotton, it's cotton, it's linen, it's all of this stuff. And this is what this material went through to become on its way to become paper. It has been dresses and it's been shirts and it's been rags and it's been, you know, all of this stuff. And now it's paper. I mean, the ultimate in recycling was, was that wonderful ancient paper. And I said, then we're still making it today. So feel this mat board and feel this mat board. The reason you want this mat board is it's not made out of trees. You know, trees do this and this is, you know, and, and people love learning things. And so when I get to talk to them, when they ask me about this, it's like, Ooh, I get to tell you all this good stuff about paper. They, they come and go with concerns when antiques roadshow was really a big thing and they were actually making it all the time. People were way more concerned about it because they were hearing about condition. Now they were hearing about condition of books and postcards and, you know, from, from the things that we, that like a an, an piece of artwork that you expect to last for hundreds of years to ephemera, which maybe lasts 50 years. You know, how do you take care of that? 
And photographs have certainly been a big deal in there. People were much more concerned about it then. Now, a lot less so. Whenever I teach, I talk to the painters about it. And I have a lot of painters who, in my class, who are, you know, they're just doing this for fun. They're just doing it for fun. And so I talk to them, I don't want this to be precious. I don't want you to think, oh, I need to just lick every stroke until it's smooth on. No, no, no. We want to be five minutes, five minutes. You got a three color palette. This is what you're painting. Do it five minutes. So I don't want you to have spent $50 on the surface that you're working on. I want you to, I want this to be able to be quick and you're okay with that. When I was a student, we were always told, always work with good materials. Always, always, always. Now, because I paint with acrylic, I'm fine doing little paintings on cast off bits of rag mat board that David has. And, and I recommend too, to artists who are looking for an inexpensive small surface to work on, go buy a frame shop and, or like, like here, Michaels and all that, those guys and just say, Hey, do you, what do you do with your leftover cutouts of your, of your rag board? Can, can I, can I have your trash? Cause there's lots of good stuff to paint on in there, particularly if it's rag board for, for the students that I'm working with now. I mean, we just paint on index cards. So, so, I mean, it's because we're not after a finished product that gets sold. We're after composition, nailing composition. And, and if you don't do it in five minutes, you're not going to do it. So let's just, but absolutely. If you are going to spend money on a piece of artwork, you want that to be archivally produced and archivally framed. So rag mat front and back, a good UV glass, if not museum glass, museum glass is non-reflective. So it's great for photographs because sometimes photographs can be so dark. And, and whenever you have anything dark, the reflection is huge. So yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you're gonna, if you're gonna put something out there for sale, respect your work. And if you're going to buy something, yeah, you want to, you want to make sure it's not going to disintegrate like limited edition prints, limited edition prints were printed on crap paper. They will yellow and die and fall apart. And, and that's all there is to it. Antique prints, those things are, were printed on real cotton rag paper. So. All right. Any last thing, any topic you want to bring up, something that's going on, something we haven't touched on that you really want to share? Well, one of the things, you know, when we had talked about doing this earlier and we were talking about business and how business is changing. And in our case, we have reduced our square footage. In the cases of many galleries that we've known, they just closed. We've reduced our square footage and we are venturing with Natalie's help and guidance and experience into a, a more online focused social media type of thing. I don't know whether, I don't know how that's going to work. I, I don't know, but, but it's all we got. It's all we got. 
So, so we're going to be working more into that realm. And on the topic of social media, there is a movie, The Social Dilemma. I've seen it on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a valuable thing, and I'm kind of I haven't seen it yet, but I listened to Rogan's interview with with Tristan Harris, and and so I don't really know how that fits into the element of doing business with integrity using social media because I don't want to abuse my painters. I don't want to abuse my clients. I don't want to trick people into spending money. I want them to, I want a buyer to write me a letter a year after he purchased something and say, I just got to tell you, this is just awesome. I love it more than the day I bought it. That's, that's sort of my goal. And, and so I'm kind of, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's the realm to be in because it's the only hope we have when, when everybody's closed down. But it's not, if, if as a buyer, I would hope that buyers seeing things online would have the opportunity to see at least one of those paintings or artworks in person so that they really know what that looks like because it's how, how is it bigger than a bread box how how do you know how do you get the concept of scale how do you know color wise when it's it's gone through a camera and a screen and your screen and you know all of those things how do you know how do you know and and i don't think i mean i have bought things online bought paintings online and been very pleased and i bought paintings online and been disappointed I've bought clothing online and been horribly disappointed. Like <laughs> it looks like a certain color on the screen and when it arrives it's a totally different color. Yeah. 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 So so having at least some kind of actual physical knowledge, physical experience of that work is I think important, but then what for me is real money, for other people is spare change. And so for, for some people, $20 is something that they can toss out there and buy something that they may be disappointed with. And for somebody else, $20,000 might be that. But it's it's still, if, if you're concerned about buying the right thing, at least know the person's, at least something of that person that you have seen your eyeballs on the actual piece, not just online. It's hard. The I mean, the whole online stuff because, uh, I, like, I live in Europe, and it's very difficult for me to get my work in front of people because I live in a country that's uh, sort of distant from some of the greater places that I could exhibit. You know, mm -hmm. I can't can't get my work to New York or or Paris or London as easily as I could if I were living in one of those cities and, and right. being able to show them the real things. So the internet is becoming more important in certain ways but I, I feel like the hard part is the 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 
closing the deal. Like I can mm-hmm. get people to like my work. I can get people to respect my work I can get people to even just look at it more frequently, whatever. But it's that mm-hmm. issue of like closing the deal to say like, yes, I will put this in my institution or I want this in my home or whatever that I think is a, more difficult when done through the internet. Yeah. Not, not impossible, but more mm-hmm. difficult. Well, I think, and, and the term closing is really interesting. I think in person, people close their own deals oftentimes. Online, I think that we're often put in the more of that situation of, okay, you like this, you've looked at it a lot. What can I do to have you buy this? You know, what are you missing from me for you to decide to make this your own? You have the price. You know what the deal with shipping is, whatever that is. You know what my return policy is, if you got one of those. What can can I do? What can I do? Um, Because you've shown enough interest that, and I know my work well enough, that I think that this would be a great addition to to how you live. W- what are you missing? And and sometimes it's really just the conversation. I remember one show that we had. It was a Russian show, and I had hung the paintings, and they hadn't been paintings that we had chosen. We just received the show, and I hung the paintings, and there was one painting, and I was like, mm-hmm. hmm. Do I actually hang this painting? You know, it was it was awkward. It was, you know, I mean, it was just. And a couple days after the opening, a woman came in. Everything's kind of calmed down, you know. And she she comes into the office and she says, "Hey, I'd like to talk to you about a painting out here." Uh, and she walks up to that painting that I almost didn't hang. And I said, "Okay, I'm going to be straightforward with you here." I need to know what you like about this painting because I am not seeing it. And she had to put into words what it was that she did like about that painting. And as she did, she fell more deeply in love with the painting and she shared that love with me. And I saw that painting and I hadn't seen it before. And I saw it through her eyes. And curiously enough, we were able to repurchase that painting from her estate. So it now hangs in my house. But that conversation is what sold the painting. And it, and it was helping her clarify in her own mind what she saw there and as she did that she just fell more in love with the painting and and I think that that's something it's that personal contact that I think a lot of people are very trepidatious about when it's an online thing but talking to you the artist is really valuable but you have to be careful as the artist to not be a pain in the ass. You know, it's it's because I think you probably have enough information 
to see that this person has looked at this painting five times or they've looked at this photograph five times. And hopefully there is a way, and this is just collecting data on your end, hopefully there's a way for you to then contact that person and just say, hey, I see you're looking at this a lot. Let's talk. Yeah, it seems like there's going to be, you know, to a certain extent, like COVID has forced an online uh, mm -hmm. focus for galleries but in the end i believe there will be a a balance that will be worked out like so online will be an element of it and an a an aspect of it but mm -hmm. it will not be the end all be all because there still does need to be that personal connection and relationship built in some way yeah yeah and i think that that as much as the internet has been great social media great for artists to get their work out there inexpensively and without sharing sales with anybody, if their careers advance, there will be that shocking moment at the time that it's like, no, you're ready for an exhibition, but guess what? You get to share your, your sales price with that. So there, there's the, the, the shock of other people being involved I, and, and just thinking in terms of, of what artists are doing now outside of the gallery realm, because so many galleries have closed and because we can't gather and, you know, all of that. I was just looking at fine art connoisseur and the magazine, the advertising in the magazine is almost entirely artists advertising when it used to be, at least 50% galleries advertising. And what I see happening with that is the images that are being advertised are of poorer quality than they used to be. Because I can tell you as a painter, I am not the best judge of what's going to make a great ad. And I have a tendency as a painter to fall in love with the difficulty of having produced X painting. And the achievement isn't necessarily there, but the difficulty was. And as it's a process love rather than a product love, so many painters are like, oh man, I had to work so hard for that. That's an awesome painting. Well, no, no, it's not. And not only that, not every great painting makes a great ad. And, and we're seeing a lot of pretty pitiful paintings make it into national magazine advertising. And it's unfortunate. I understand on the part of the magazines that they have to be able to pay their bills. I understand that, you know, it's like, well, hey, you know, <laughs> make lemonade. This is all we got. And that sort of gets into that integrity question. But, you know, it's more important for us to stay alive. Uh, like, like American Art Collector is now only online. There's no longer a print version. Maybe they'll come back. But for now, once they lost the gallery advertising, they just didn't, there wasn't, you know, there just wasn't enough to keep up the expense of all the printing. It's, it's interesting that artists working as their own business people instead of just being the producer of the paintings 
now they're also the seller of the paintings and the advertiser of the paintings. They don't understand how different those two fields are. So many don't understand. And they just see bottom line that, well, this is a $3,000 painting. And if I work from a gallery, I only get 1500 out of it. And, and the question is, do you want to spend your time painting? Or do you want to spend your time advertising your work and dealing with clients and doing the whole shipping thing? And, and some people do. Well, but part, part of that for me is, is that uh, the role of a gallery and or a curator or the other people that I associate with this is that their role is sort of the arbiters of good taste. Mm -hmm. Like, cause like, like you said, like in theory, I, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> like I, as an artist could sit there and say like, Oh, this is my best piece. But you as a gallerist who works with the collectors and the institutions and the curators, you could say, yeah, uh, you might think that's your best piece, but that's not your best piece. Your best piece is this other one over here that's in the corner that you think is a piece of junk. Mm -hmm. Like that's actually your best piece. So yeah. like a lot of times we as creative people need those, uh, those in between, those moderators, those whatever, those arbiters of good taste, whatever you want to call them, you know, to help us to realize what we're doing well and what we're not doing well and what's mm -hmm. our best work and what's not our best work. Because we are often too uh, attached and you know, yeah. sentimental and, and whatever towards our work. Because again, like you're saying, like process versus product, like we're thinking of all the, the agony we went through, the pain to get that beautiful color, that great rendering, that beautiful composition. Whereas you all are looking at the, the product and not the process. And we often need you for that purpose. So this idea that we don't need you and we can do it on our own and we shouldn't be giving 50% to the galleries, I personally think it's a bad idea. I think that galleries and curators and all these good, these moderators are a very important aspect. Cur art critics even are part of this important aspect of sort of translating the, the process into a completed product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> well done. Well done. Yeah, I think I think that the artists are often too close to the work and they they just don't they just don't see it. We have a beautiful beautiful painting by Cameron Smith and I know at some time I'm going to convince David that I need that painting because it's it's just a fabulous nude and a totally abstract situation. I mean, this is just this really remarkable painting. And Cameron is so good at painting those paintings. But in West Virginia, we don't have a clientele for that. You know, we just don't. And, and, and so that's the other aspect of it, that an artist may have a gallery relationship but the work that they are now producing is is just not appropriate for that location. And I don't want him to stop painting these things. He needs to get to a more urban venue. Oh, yeah. This is a dilemma that a lot of artists run into, but it's better these days. But it's the idea that oftentimes artists think that their market is wherever they live 
or right. wherever they get a gallery, but that is oftentimes not the case at all. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I'm an American artist, but most of my collectors have been Germany and France. Mm -hmm. Now I've never lived in Germany or France, but that's mm -hmm. where most people that buy my work are from. Yeah. And, and yeah. equally, even within the United States, I'm an East coast, West coast. So I've been in DC, San Francisco, New York, uh, North Carolina, but mo the most per people that buy my work in the United States oddly are in Chicago. Chicago. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But I, but I've never lived in yeah. Chicago. So like, uh -huh. so, so like I find that a lot of artists have this preconceived idea that, that wherever physically, where either they work or where their gallery exists is the best market for them, but it's really mm -hmm. something they need to get past. Cause that's not true at all. Mm -hmm. So it, it, that's just either where you choose to live and you produce your work and that, and, or that's where your gallery chooses to exist, but your gallery should and can then sell your work anywhere in the world. Right. And, and that's the two things from there. One, how that re relates to the question you asked early on about when you have an artist who suddenly, you know, takes a turn into something else. It's the gallery's responsibility to say, you need to work where, you know, you need to continue in what floats your boat. You know, you gotta, you got, gotta keep working on what makes you excited, but this work, consider talking to this gallery here, this gallery there, this gallery there. And you're not looking for all three of those. You're looking for one of those people. And if you are going to do that, I, as your current representation here, as one of your current representations, I will contact the people ahead of your contact if that's what you want to do. And that's, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, but the, it's a responsibility of the, the galleries to reach beyond their current clientele, but also to understand that they, that they may never have the clientele for the artwork that this person is now producing. I mean, that's, I think that's something that's been seen well with the work that, that Cameron is producing, but, but even people as well known as Malcolm Lipke, that he, his work became much more, oops, what's, what's the word? What's the word? Sexual. And, and when you move from an image of a woman brushing her hair in a, you know, in front of a mirror to things where it's just, and, and, and I'm, I'm having an old person moment here. I can't think of the word that I'm looking for. Sensual, erotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. And, and it's just, and, and that is just, it's just, it's just a big change. It's just a big change. And, and I mean, we, years ago, we worked with, with Lipke, love the work, still love the work, but it's just not something that we can, 
that we can do, but he's doing brilliant stuff. And, and, and because he's in California and he's in New York, he's, you know, he's fine, but he lives in Minnesota and he probably doesn't have anybody selling his work. Well, he probably does, but, but anyway, anyway, I mean, it's just, it just gets harder. Well, a change of style then changes collectors and then it changes uh, cultural and, and community norms kind of thing. Like if you. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't. And, and I just want to. Uh, this is probably lasting longer than what you want to do. But where you said that you're changing style, I don't think style changes because I do think that artists who have achieved mastery they paint who they are and they have no option of painting other than who they are. That doesn't mean that they won't go from painting figure work to painting abstract work, but style to me is something that's much more trendy. Yeah. 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 Surface super superficial. Yeah. And that, and that if you have an artist who thinks he's going to change styles, then you never had somebody who achieved a, a mastery to begin with. So it's, it's kind of, it's our, it's our handwriting and, and I can do my handwriting in several different ways. I can print, I can, you know, I, in depending on different times, I do it in a different way, but I think it's very clear that it's always me. And, and so it's the same thing with artwork. It's just the progression of somebody's artistic investigation of something. Yeah. Yeah. I'd go with that. Yeah. I'd go okay. with that. Diamond skulls and, you know, butterflies. And, and, uh, big shiny bunnies. Yeah. 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 Or, or balloon dogs. Hey, there you go. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank yeah. you very much for your time. This has been well, great fun. Well, yeah. Thanks so much. This has been, this has been fun. I've missed talking to you all this time and it's exciting yeah. to touch base again. Thanks. And I wish you all good things. And I look forward to following what you're doing. It's going to be fun listening to the people you talk to. I hope so.